Good morning to you, okay? You made it through the, the wind, and the, I had things blowing off my porch this morning. That was, that was fun. Uh, let me give you just a couple things. Brandon gave you three things. I'm going to give you just two here before we get started. Number one, let me give thanks for AJ and our team uh, stepping in last week to be able to preach. AJ got that call Friday morning. So just so you know that AJ is a man of God and always has a word for the church, uh, he stepped in and was uh, ably able to preach and uh, bless you. And I told him, I said, in God's providence and timing, that is exactly what our church needed at that point. So I pray that that was a blessing to you. I got uh, COVID. Have you heard of this? COVID? This, I don't know, bug going around? Uh, I got that I, in, in typical servant-hearted fashion, gave it to my wife and two of my kids. So par for the course. We're in our like six-week quarantine. You know, like three of my kids don't have it. Two do. One, how many kids do I have? Three. Anyway, two have it now. Four do not. My wife's on the way out of it. So appreciate your prayers for us as we... Um, handle that. That was, that was no fun. But thanks uh, to be a part of a team and for AJ to be able to do that. AJ, wherever you are, thank you, brother. Um, all right, so Lord willing, in the next five minutes, that's not what I've started saying, Lord willing. We don't know what's going to happen. In the next five minutes, we're going to start the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, before we get there, it is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, and uh, I just want to say one thing about that. Typically, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend and Sanctity of Life Sunday fall on the same Sunday. They don't this week. So I'm going to say just two minutes on this uh, for us as a church. One of the things that we believe as a church is that unity, racial unity, ethnic harmony come as a result of no other place other than the cross of Jesus Christ. That we believe that there is an opportunity for a true every tongue, tribe, and nation kind of unity which means uh, we believe that there actually is an opportunity for there to be unity uh, between black and white and Asian and Latino and all the kinds of people who are made in God's image. But the place that it comes is the singular location of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you here from the book of Ephesians. And, and the reason I do this is that churches are under pressure now to give up the only thing that makes them distinct when it comes to the greatest difficulties of mankind today. And the pressure we face comes from outside of the church. It doesn't come from the scriptures because we believe the scriptures are very, very clear that any kind of racial superiority is put to death at the cross. That true ethnic unity comes as a result of a blood-bought unity in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who, what Paul says in Ephesians, put to death the hostility. So I'm going to read to you here from Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what it says, 2.14. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
And what Paul writes here is a result of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. If you think the gospel is merely a set of ideas that handle you and God and have not pressed the gospel truth of Jesus Christ down into relationships where there is animosity and hatred and frustration and anger and misunderstanding, then we haven't understood the gospel correctly. That the gospel message of Jesus Christ unites people from every single ethnic background, from every single socioeconomic strata, from every single place upon the planet, we can find true unity, humility, joy, and peace because of Jesus. Amen? Amen. That that comes alone through a unity that is blood-bought because of Jesus Christ. He cares enough to create a multi-ethnic people of God who all approach, not on the basis of skin color, not on the basis of education, not on the basis of socioeconomic position in our culture, but come alone because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. So, you have the opportunity, church, to be able to talk about the gospel in a very unique and explicit way when people say, well, it's all the problem with the people who don't get along. You know what the problem is? There's hostility. There's anger. There's hatred. There's sin. There's division that has only been healed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, I'm going to pray for this reality in our church that the gospel message might guide us into those conversations and you might have the authority and joy and confidence to be able to enter into conversations that are really, really heated with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to read Ecclesiastes together. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we admit together that apart from the work of Jesus Christ, we exist as arrogant individuals as proud individuals. And what we confess because of the cross of Jesus Christ is one, that we are far more sinful and broken than we dared believe. But simultaneously, we are also profoundly loved that you might give your life upon the cross to die for us, to create in your sacrifice, your death, burial, and resurrection, one new man, that there is perfect unity because of the blood of Christ that has been won because you went to war with our sin and you conquered Satan, sin, and death. And Father, I pray for us as a church that we would stand true to the truths of Ephesians chapter 2 that because of what Jesus has done, we can provide uh, and we can confess to the unity that isn't as a result of us being smart or isn't a result of us being uh, able to create unity in and of ourselves. but it is a spirit-born, blood-bought, resurrected unity that we proclaim that we now can love and serve people from every single background because of how much you have loved us and you have taken our sin upon you. So Father, may this aroma of Jesus Christ penetrate down into every single relationship we have with every single kind of person. Would we, through the humility that the cross confesses about us, be the kind of servants and men and women who love one another well and now are able to be a lighthouse of hope for unity and reconciliation because of what Jesus has done for us in this city. So Father, bless us in that endeavor. Would you honor it through your spirit and through your word and would your people honor you in the relationships of their lives, confessing that we were sinners, Christ came to get us, he died He was buried, and he was raised, and that's the confession of the church. Father, bless us as we seek out your will in these things. In Christ's name, amen. Got your Bibles? Have you ever seen a Bible? Okay, good. 
man, I just kind of know who I'm talking to. Grab your Bibles and turn about the middle of your Bible to a book called Ecclesiastes, a book that is hard to say and even harder to spell. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'll admit, this book makes me nervous. Uh, And you'll see why as we get into it here together. Uh, Ecclesiastes, I am a self-confessed driven individual, and Ecclesiastes comes for me, and I thought if I'm going to share in it, I'm going to share it with you. So uh, Ecclesiastes is a part of the poetic section of your Bible. The The poetry section of your Bible is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Um... Books in the poetic section of your Bible, when you read the Old Testament and you read the narrative sections of your Bible, the truths and principles of walking with God are on display uh, in story form, aren't they? That you read the story of Moses and you go, well, it's probably bad to murder people. And you read the story of Joseph and you go, look at that guy in prison for what he did not do. And you begin to glean principles from the scriptures in the Old Testament, but they're through story form. It's like watching a movie that God illustrates some of his truth by the lives of his people. When you read the, um, the epistles, when you read the epistles, a lot of times the epistles are very mathematical. That it's this and this, but not that. Thus and so, and this and that, but not thus and so. And it's like a big mathematical proof because Paul likes to write, Peter likes to write logically and he draws out conclusions and uh, posits statements and says, you're probably thinking this, should we sin more that grace may abound? By no means should we do those things. So your epistles are very logical. But when you read poetry, does anybody read poetry? You like, I really like poetry. Yeah, see, you all love God with, with your science books. That's the problem. Uh, I don't, and I'm, and I'm, I'm a science guy. I was a math and science guy too. Um, and then God put me into, you know, works of literature. So um, <clears throat> when you read poetry though, and you get into the poetical section of your Bible, you come across the Psalms that put into words the things that you feel, Right? They put into, into, uh, into words things that you have prayed. And you go, oh my gosh, David prayed that and I'm praying that now. Why so downcast, oh my soul? God, where are you? How long, oh Lord, must I take counsel in my soul? Then you get to books like Job, which you don't read very often because you're scared that if you read Job, your life is going to go bad and God really wants to teach you a lesson. Anybody do that? I do that. I stay away from that book. But what's Job about? Job is about understanding that life didn't work the way Job thought it should work, that he was obedient and faithful and kind and patient and looked out for the poor and he he prayed for his kids. And what does it mean to serve God when you've got a disappointing wife and your kids are dead and you've lost the esteem of your peers and now you've got these friends who argue with your suffering. Is God worthy of being followed through seasons of suffering? And Job seeks vindication all through the book, trying to understand how is he going through this season of life. You get to the book of Proverbs and Proverbs gets into the crevices of our life. Proverbs is not a Sunday book. It's a Monday through Saturday book. 
It's a book that you go out and you encounter people at work or in your family or on the street and you begin to see life through the lens of Solomon who gives you wisdom. Hard-fought wisdom of the knowledge of God lived in the context of this world and it gets into the, the narrow places of our lives. Or you have to make decisions like answer a fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes with don't answer a fool according to his folly lest you become like him yourself. Well, which is it? I don't know what to do. That's wisdom. Well, what we're going to have here in the book of Ecclesiastes is more poetry in that way, but it's going to be Solomon's autobiography. It's going to be his lived experience. And what he's going to do in this book is take life and he's going to lift it up and look at it from all sides and go, what's the point? While Job searches for vindication as he journeys through a life of suffering and difficulty, Solomon is going to look for meaning. But what Solomon is going to do is he's not an agnostic or an atheist. He's too wise for that. He's, he understands who God and who he is. But what Solomon is going to do is restrict all of his seeking and all of his searching to things that you can touch, feel, see, hear, experience on earth. And the reason it makes me nervous is that the book of Ecclesiastes is an exposing book. Solomon goes places that you just think about going. He makes visible the inner convictions of our hearts that we want life to be fundamentally successful, meaningful, find esteem, have our kids be obedient, successful financially. And he starts to pull out these um, unspoken ideologies that we have. And he says, let's, let's follow that line of thinking where you're living right now. Let's follow it all the way to the end. And I'm going to come back and tell you whether or not it was worth you following that. The reason it makes me nervous is I have these in my heart. Is that I have these unspoken ideologies, unspoken convictions that if I do X, Y, and Z, my life will turn out like A, B, C. And what I don't do very often is account for what Solomon is going to show us here in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. All right, so you've got Ecclesiastes 1 in front of you. You all there? Say yes. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. <clears throat> Let's pray one more time because we need it. Father, we uh, give thanks for your word. We give thanks for your people. We give thanks for this gathering for the few minutes that we look into your word, we pray for insight beyond our years. That we would see things as a result of Solomon and his searching and seeking out that perhaps we haven't considered before. That, Father, your word would expose us and that we would find it as true and as valid for our experience. Give us a tenacious heart to lay hold of the truths of your word here and to learn what you would have us to learn. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. Let's go. The words of the preacher. Now, if you have an NIV 
Bible, it may say teacher there. The word Ecclesiastes comes from a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and their translation turned it into Ecclesiastes because of this word right here, preacher. The word in the Hebrew is the word koheleth, which I'm not, it starts with Q and it has a TH in it, and I'm not even going to worry about spelling it. Uh, but it's a word that means typically the, the leader of an assembly. And Solomon begins as the leader of this assembly. It's like a big sermon. Only it's a sermon, like I said, that's going to lift up these ideologies that we have and expose the way of thinking that we all carry when we come to the word of God. So here's this preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, uh, Currently, in the modern, kind of like in our modern era, the authorship of, of this book has been challenged or has been questioned as to whether or not it's really Solomon. I think most of the internal evidence in this book points to Solomon, uh, and I'll tell you why as we go through it. Uh, particularly one of the things that, that highlights this is something that he says in chapter two. If you just flip over one page, um, I'm sorry, the end of chapter one, he says this, I said in my heart, 116, I've acquired great, great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now, if you don't know the story of Solomon, Solomon is the second uh, king over Israel, David being the one who gathers all of the 12 tribes finally under his authority in Jerusalem, and he hands the kingdom off to Solomon. He gets ready to build God, David gets ready to build God a, a temple. God says, no, you're a warrior, but what I'm going to do is allow you uh, to build the temple through your son. And what David does is set everything up so that his son can rule and reign and create and build the temple of God through Solomon. Now, Solomon um, go, has a conversation with God one night, and he prays to God. And God comes to Solomon and says, ask for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. Which is a pretty, I mean, that's like the genie coming out of the bottle, isn't it? Well, Solomon says, here's what I want. I'm going to ask for wisdom. I'm not going to ask for safety for my enemies. I'm not going to ask for long life. I'm not going to ask for great riches. I'm going to ask for wisdom because I'm a young man and I need wisdom to be able to govern this great people of yours. And God goes, boy. That's a good request. It's like asking for more wishes. <clears throat> and God gives it to him. And he gives him great wisdom. And I'm going to read from you here from 1 Kings chapter 4. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it to you. But here's what God says about Solomon. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Now, if you know anything about the history of Israel, Solomon is a leader and a king during a time of massive financial prosperity. It is the height of Israel's kingdom. They become a trade route and they begin to trade with the Far East in Assyria and they begin to tra uh, trade with the West in, in Egypt. And they become, in their day, one of the most magnificent and powerful and successful nations of the day. And Solomon is at the helm. Now, why does that matter? Because Solomon is given to us in this book as somebody who is far more successful than I will ever be. He's far more influential than any of you will ever be. He's far more wealthy than any of us will ever be. 
He is the, the individual at the peak of his game with all of the wisdom that God himself has given, with all of the success that he could possibly have. And it's Solomon now who writes this book for us. So he writes from a position of massive success so that you and I might understand something about Ecclesiastes. Because don't you have this presumption in your mind that if you were more successful in an area of life, you'd be more wise? That if I just had more money, followers, success, esteem, whatever it is, my life would have more meaning. And what Solomon does for us is takes that idea all the way to the end and comes back and goes, let me tell you something. Let me give you a lesson. Okay? Words of preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now Solomon doesn't pull any punches. He gets right into it. Verse two is the theme of the entire book. In fact, verse two uh, is captured all the way back and the end of the book in chapter 12 as well. He says the same thing. So it's like this book is bracketed by two incredibly powerful uh, attention-getting statements. It's like the cover letter to the essay is what he says here. Remember cover letters? Anybody write an essay? Okay, you, thank you. Donna's written essays. She does cover letters. Does anybody use cover letters anymore? I don't, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, vanity for us in the English, typically uh, we think of arrogance, don't we? We think of an individual who is proud and vain and overly concerned with externals. Well, in the Hebrew, the word vain or vanity uh, is the word H-E-B-E-L. Write that down. Somebody will quiz you on this this, this week and you'll go, I know, I know the word for vanity. Uh, it's technically the word for breath. So when Solomon begins this journey that he's about to uh, teach us about, he starts with vanity of vanities. Breath of all breaths. It's an extreme statement. It's like holy of holies, the most holy place, vanity of vanities. Now, The word is typically used in um, metaphorical ways. Let me just read you a couple of ways that it's used throughout the Old Testament. It's used about 40 times in this book uh, in a similar way. Deuteronomy 32 is the first place it's used. Here's what Deuteronomy 32 says. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. Idols is that word breath. So keep that in mind. Psalm 62, again in the poetic literature, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Psalm 94, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. Proverbs 31, 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. It's not a word that means meaningless. Some commentators say it's the meaninglessness of all meaninglessnesses. But the word doesn't mean meaningless. It means empty. It means futile. So in the context of idols, it's something transitory. It's something useful. It's something not helpful whatsoever. They're empty things. 
in the context of the social standing of men upon the earth, kings and those who are impoverished. The social standing of individuals is a breath. It lacks substance. It's transitory. It's ephemeral. It's short-lived. It's futile. In the context of human beauty, it's fleeting. It's temporary. It's not here forever. If you think about your breath on a winter's day, can you see it? You can see it. How long can you see it? Maybe four seconds. But it's not that it's just short-lived. It's that there's no substance to it. I can't bottle it, control it, and build with it. I can't build breath sandcastles, right? Not only can I not grab it, it's there for just a moment and it's gone, but it's not substantial. Are you encouraged yet? Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. He can't mean that, can he? Don't you have that inner tension? He can't mean that all things are futile. All things are like that. And when you encounter, let me pause just a minute. When you encounter that tension, this tension that you and I feel right now as we go, all things are futile and short-lived and ephemeral and not lasting and not substantial, and I want to encourage you to explore that tension because that tension right there is the power of God's word in your life. Because that tension is the very thing that causes you and I to lean in and to ask the kind of questions that Solomon is going to lead us on. So he starts with this hand grenade of a statement. All is vanity. Vanity of vanity. Futileness of all futileness. All of it is vanity. All of it is a breath. Gone. And then he asks you a question. Okay, so you have that tension in your heart of all of this all is vanity. He can't mean that all of it is vanity. He can't mean that everything is futile. Everything is short-lived. Everything is, it can't mean that. Verse three, he confronts you with an assessment. All things are like this. Then he asks you a question. It's a rhetorical question. Verse three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. That's the key question that Solomon will seek to answer throughout the course of this book. He gives you his assessment of all things vanity, then he's gonna give you his personal experience. And he begins with this rhetorical question. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So two things about this. One, gain. It's a, some commentators think it's a um, economics term. You know the term net profit? Right? Net profit is, is profit after you've paid your employees, after you've paid your overhead, after you've paid all the things. And at the end of the day, it comes from a root word. It's only used here, the, 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 the verb form is used here in this book, but it's from a word that means to be left over. What's left over at the end of the day? After I've paid all my expenses. And he says, what does man gain during his life? And this is the second thing, under the sun. Solomon is going to be profoundly disciplined in his search. This is why this book is so important for you and I. Because I think, I would wager, I would suggest to you that we typically don't take our, our um, mental and emotional convictions and run them out to the end. We like to be a little bit ignorant, don't we? We like to live in this world of, well, if I just do X, Y, and Z, my life will be blessed, fulfilled, and worthwhile. 
And Solomon says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to take that conviction, that line of thinking, and I'm going to push it all the way out to the end. And we're going to examine if life under the sun, which is Solomon's way of saying, I'm going to cap off the spiritual nature of things. I know God is there. I know God is true. I know God has created all things. In fact, I have encountered God in my own conversations with him where he gave me wisdom. But what I'm going to do is really examine mankind and their life under the sun. Let's see if there's meaning to be found down here. Now, what do you think? What do you think he's going to find out? Because right now you don't believe it, and I don't, I don't believe it either, because I'm a driven individual, and I like to say that my life has meaning and purpose and design because I'm strong and fast, I'm less fast than I used to be. I'm fast less now. <clears throat> and I'm wise, and I've got insight, and I've got God's word, and I'm able to handle the situations in life. I'm able to make my life mean something. Hang on to that thought. Verse four. Now watch how he illustrates this. He's gonna illustrate the answer to that question subjectively, objectively, and naturally by looking at the world. Look at verse four. A generation goes, what's that mean? We bury him. A generation comes, what's that mean? We birth him. Generation goes, we bury him. Generation comes, we birth him. We bury him, we birth him. We bury him, we birth him. We bury him, we birth him. But the earth remains forever. Is the earth fundamentally differently, fundamentally different than when my dad was born? I'm pretty sure we've had spring, summer, fall, and winter. Spring, summer, fall, and winter. Spring, summer, fall, and winter. I'm 44. My parents are 70. My grandparents were in their 90s when they died. And we've had consistently Spring, summer, fall, winter. Spring, summer, fall, winter. Generation gets buried, generation gets birthed. They lay down, they come up. They lay down, they come up. They come up, okay? What does man gain from life under the sun? The earth remains forever. Verse five, the sun rises and the sun goes down. Dawn, midday, dusk. Whatever happens after dusk, night. Sun rises. The sun goes down and hastens. What a great word this is. That hastens word is used of um, enemies that pursue David. The word is also used in the context of women giving labor. Giving women in women in labor. Giving labor. Some labor. And it's used in other places of panting. Here's the picture that you get of the sun. The sun goes, ah. Now, in some places in the Bible, like Psalm 19, you know Psalm 19? That in the heavens God has sent the sun, and like a strong man with joy, he goes out to run his course, right? Psalm 19 is this positive view of the strength of God being made visible in the created order. But Ecclesiastes is not like that. The sun hastens, which means it gets up in the morning. I can do it again. I gotta do that. I gotta do it again. What does the sun gain? Nothing. Sun's tired. 
It's got to get up. It's got to do it again. Generation goes. Generation comes. Generation goes. Generation comes. The sun rises. The sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south. It goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. How many times does he have around in this passage? Three times. At the east, to the west. At the east, to the west. The east, to the west. The north, to the south. The north, to the south. The north, to the south. The north. My family is, uh, my wife is a, uh, loves meteorology. So uh, in the morning, when we get up, we don't watch like, whatever else is on in the morning. We watch the Weather Channel. I don't know, I don't know what else is on in the morning. Is there anything on in the morning besides the Weather Channel? In my house, it's only the Weather Channel. There's not one morning we have woken up where the weather people have said, well, there aren't any fronts anywhere. We just, we're just, I don't know. We get most everything wrong, but we don't even have fronts to talk about today. Right? There's always a front of something. A cold front, a warm front, a high pressure, a low pressure. And around and around and around and around and around. Now, this is Solomon's point. What's the question he's asking? What does man gain during his life under the sun? And the answer is coming in the form of what you observe in creation. What does the sun gain from all of its rising and its setting? Nothing. What does the wind gain from all of its blowing and heaving and upping north and south and north and south and north and south and around and around and around, east and west and east and west, north and south and north and south? Verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea isn't full. Has anybody ever stopped to ask, when is the ocean going to be full? Anybody ask that? You don't ask that. You don't even think about that. That's a dumb question. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea isn't full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. East and west and east and west and north and south and north and south and precipitation, evaporation, condensation, evaporation, precipitation, condensation, precipitation, evaporation, condensation. Why aren't the streams full? Why isn't the sea full? The whole thing, what did, it, what did we gain? So he's showing you woven, hardwired into creation is this constant rising and setting, rising and setting, blowing north, blowing south, blowing north, blowing south, going up, going down, going up, going down. And there's never a time when the earth goes, we're good on rain. There's never a time when we go, ah, we had enough sun yesterday, let's have no sun for the next six weeks, we'll call the sun back when we're ready for more sun right around August, right? We don't do that. Hardwired into creation is this. Any gain? No. Is the wind done blowing? No, wind keeps blowing. Photosynthesis stopped. Nope, keeps going. What is the gain? All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. Verse 8 if you're paying attention, all things are full of weariness. Now, there's a transition here in verse 8 because we're about to talk about man's experience on this planet that is east and west and east and west and north and south and north and south and up and down and up and down and up and down. And commentators go two ways on this verse. First way they go is, I can see it, but I can't understand it. That mankind's perception of the world is, I see it's working but I can't get into the reasoning behind it. I'm stuck under the sun. 
or they go this way and they start talking about man's experience. Now, if you thought that there's a hardwired circular futility to creation, let's talk about your human experience. All things are full of weariness. Man can't do three things. One, he can't utter it. Have you ever gotten to, now I have six kids. Suzanne and I get to the end of the day and we go, there are no more words, okay? No more words, it's just bedtime. My words are done. My, I can't do any more talk. We can talk about this incredibly complex idea that you bring up at bedtime tomorrow. We're not going to talk about it today. But we never get to a point where our words are done, don't we? I've said all the words I know how to say and all the words that I've learned. I don't need to say any more words for the rest of my life. There's always more to say. But also, we realize that our words don't accomplish what we thought they ought to accomplish. Ever have a conversation with somebody and they just don't listen? And you go, I just gave you the wisdom of God most high, and you didn't do anything I said. And your life has not changed at all. I am weary. Life is full of weariness. Then he goes on and he says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. That mankind is filled with anticipation. Aren't you excited for the next movie trailer to come out? I don't even know what it is. But it's coming. The next trailer, the next thing. We're all, we never get to the end of, you know, we don't get to 2.30 and we just, I mean, maybe you do if you need a nap. But there's always more to see, isn't there? There's always more to observe. There's, our eyes never go, well, we're tired. We're full up on information and light and rods and cones and information. There's always more to see. Nor is the ear filled, uh, excuse me, ear filled with hearing. You know this, somebody gives you a little bit of gossip about that person that you don't like at work. And you go, oh, I'd like to hear it. Because my ears aren't full yet. You know that. There's never a time where we're starved for information. Our ears aren't open to hearing new and interesting information. This is our experience. Verse 9, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Now, you got a little bit of tension, right, in this conversation. What do you mean everything is new? Imagine how many people have learned to tie their shoes and how many people yet, as a conversation, as a generation goes and a generation comes, still have to learn to tie their shoes? What has been is what will be. Remember checkbooks? Anybody use checkbooks anymore? Remember how you had to learn how to, thank you, Don, you and me. We're just, this is, we're right on right here. Remember how, to, how you had to learn to balance a checkbook? It's happened before, now you use Venmo. I had a grandfather who when um, uh, the ATM machines came out, he wouldn't use them. He goes, no, I go into the bank. I go, you do it, good job. Don't, don't let that machine tell you what to do. You go into the bank and you have a relationship with the guy back there. Right now, it's, it's all Venmo. It's like I gotta hit the button, hit the thing, it's all the money's gone, right? How many people need to learn economics in this generation of our life? All of them. Why? Because a generation comes, a generation goes. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. We're all experiencing what our previous generations have experienced in different ways, but it's the same thing. 
Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. Now, come on now. Come on, Solomon. What about vacuums? <laughs> Solomon, radio. Remember radio? Nobody uses radio anymore. You all have uh, Spotify playlists. We don't use the radio anymore. Remember radio? Remember the internet? The internet wasn't around when I was in college, right? What about all this technological advancement? Tell me, has technological advancement changed mankind? How many laws did we have to create for misuse and abuse of the internet before there was an internet? None. What happened? We just found new and inventive ways. You know, the 20th century is the bloodiest century on record because of human warfare. Far surpassing the generations that have come before. How have we done with greater technological advancement? This is Solomon's point. What has been done is what will be done. We still have murders. We still have genocide. We still have problems. And we have a tendency to be kind of uh, what's the word? We kind of have a space-time arrogance to us. Well, the people before us didn't have the iPhone. They had the flip phone. How did they make it? No touch screens. What cavemen? Right? We think we're better. We think we're more advanced. And Solomon's point is is there a thing that's really new? Or does it just illustrate mankind in new and inventive ways? Here's why. The re you know why we think that? You know why we think we're far more advanced and far more intellectually enlightened than the generations who've come before is verse 11. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. What's our problem? We've forgotten. We don't remember. How many times this week did your knowledge and awareness of the fifth president of the United States shape and change your life? We had a fifth president? Uh, Washington, Adams, Jefferson. It's real foggy after that, right? James Monroe. There's no remembrance. There's no lasting memorials. There's no even mankind's memorials of the people. Do you know your grandparents? If you know your grandparents, raise your hand. Okay? Do you know your great-grandparents? Come on, raise them high so we can see how, how much you love your family. Right? Do you know your great-great-grandparents? Yeah, I didn't either. What's happened? We've forgotten the generations that have come before. And guess what? My kids, grandkids, will forget me. That a generation, a generation comes, a generation goes. A generation comes, a generation goes. East, west, east, west, north, south. Berry, birth, berry, birth. Around, 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 around. What does man gain? Look at creation, it's full of weariness. Look at your personal experience. It's full of weariness. Look at history, it's full of forgetting and weariness. Now Solomon's gonna introduce us to himself here. Look at verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He uses two words here, to seek is used of seeking the Lord. It's a pretty common kind of phrase in the Old Testament. But the word for search out is a word that's used of the spies going into the land of Canaan for Joshua. 
that Solomon is about to take us on a journey where he doesn't just observe things, but he examines things. He gets to the heart of what's going on, and he's going to get to the heart of it through the wisdom God has given him, which is why this book to me is so powerful, because Solomon, the wisest, wealthiest, most successful person in all of the Old Testament, is going to find a brokenness and a frustration about life that he cannot overcome. And what Solomon needs is a Christian worldview. I've applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given. Now, what Solomon's going to discover about life under the sun is not that it's random. Solomon knows too much about God and who he is for life to be random. Solomon acknowledges that life is hardwired by a creator. But he also acknowledges that we exist in an unhappy business. That life under the sun doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Have you found that yet? No? Good, then I'm glad you're, oh, phew, I'm so glad you're here for Ecclesiastes with us. Life doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Look at verse 14. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is a vanity and a striving after the wind. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. Have you discovered that about life? That there are some things that are warped. You ever go to Home Depot and you try to get a board that you need? My dad taught me this because my dad was uh, a builder and uh, really good with his hands. He'd teach me how to pick out boards. You pick out boards, and when you go and you're looking at a board, you put the board on its end, you're watching down the, the grain of the board to see whether or not the board that's in front of you will twist. Because if it twists, it's not good for building with. You need a board that's plumb and true and straight. And what Solomon says is that life is bent. Life is crooked. It doesn't straighten out. And the thing that's important for us to wrestle with in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 the thing that makes me nervous about my own soul is so often I go into scenarios where I forget that life is bent. That life has a warp to it. That no amount of wisdom, insight, money, success, education, proper philosophy, theological verse spitting will allow me to uncork life. And the thing that I'm nervous for for me and the thing that I'm nervous for for us as a church is that you might labor under the delusion that life is not crooked. Like, I, I, I am concerned that we have a generation of Christians who really believe that life is not bent. And they get surprised when life snaps on them. They get surprised that life is crooked. They get surprised that they don't get out of life the things that they want, that they put in three and three and three and they get four. And I want to say, yes, that's life. That's what it means to be life in a sinful world. There are some situations you cannot fix. There are some relationships that will not get better. There are some difficulties in life that we have to live with. And Solomon is going to take this ideology and make sure that you and I understand it. 
What is crooked cannot be made straight. Number two, what is lacking cannot be counted. Have you found that not only is life twisted, but you don't get out of life what you want? That you find about life a constant scarcity. I'm never as satisfied as I thought I would be. This relationship doesn't make me as happy. This financial success doesn't make me as happy. This promotion doesn't make me as happy. There's a hardwired scarcity and lack to life. Now, commentators go two ways in interpreting Ecclesiastes. They either say, is Solomon's message fundamentally negative? Or is Solomon's message fundamentally positive? Because what Solomon will talk about is the vanity of life, but then his response to it is going to be, have joy. Enjoy yourself. Live your life. Quit worrying so much. So which is it? How is all things vanity at the same time take joy? Solomon sounds a little, ski, a little broken, schizophrenic in his mind that he can't connect these two worlds. And I think that's the tension of the book of Ecclesiastes for us. Because when you move to the New Testament, there's nothing that Solomon says that isn't in the New Testament. 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, the New Testament carries an idea of gain. Do you know that? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul tells Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of this world. Let me show you one more spot as we close. Turn to Romans 8. In our journey as Christians throughout this life, we need Ecclesiastes to reorient our perspective. You and I need to understand that life comes with a warp to it. That life comes with a, a lack to it. And that's not there accidentally. Christians acknowledge that something happened in our world. That there was an invader in our world. And things are not the way that they are supposed to be. Amen? Life isn't, it's broken, but it wasn't always that way. Romans 8 says this, 8.18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation itself, imagine this. Creation under the curse is waiting for something. Creation itself has an anticipation to it. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. You know, in the the Greek translators of the Old Testament had to translate that word, H-E-B-E-L, that breath word in the Old Testament. They landed on this word here in Romans. They landed on futility. 
that creation itself was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The greatest news that Ecclesiastes can tell us and can explain for us and can tease out for us is helping us live with our eyes open. We are too primed and loaded and filled with anticipation that we ought to make our life and our satisfaction and our fulfillment and our purpose here on this planet. And what Ecclesiastes does is shake us that we would understand that creation itself is subjected to futility. A generation comes, and bury, birth, bury, birth, east, west, east, west, north, south, north, south, precipitation, evaporation, condensation, precipitation. Creation itself doesn't have any gain. Why would you think you have any gain? So that we would frame our perspective rightly and we would understand what Paul says in Romans, that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That we will not be free until our redemption is completed. But it began with the God-man who took the curse of creation upon his brow and went to the cross for us and bore our sin and rose again so that we might now walk in newness of life and in hope that our life doesn't have to be here. Your purposes, the things that you are investing in right now in your life that you think give you esteem and purpose and worth and all of those things are found in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. They are not found in the warp and brokenness of this created world. See, the greatest hope for Solomon is that someone came and someone died and someone rose again so that one day creation itself will be set free. But it's going to start with the one who says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Father, we ask in our study of Ecclesiastes for these next few weeks that you might uh, untether our hearts from this world, that we would be people who long for heaven, people who would um, exhibit by our lives the kind of joy that Solomon talks about, that we would be blissfully free from this perpetual desire to get something out of life under the sun that it was never promised to give us. For those who are in this room who are facing that frustration, I pray that the spirit of, uh, of God would enlighten their hearts and minds, that you would turn their gaze to Jesus Christ who lived and died, was buried and rose again that we might experience freedom and hope and that one day he will return. One day he will complete the work that he started. But until then, might we live with joy and peace and love and care for one another, being reminded that uh, he has overcome the world. Father, bless us as we discover these pathways of our heart that are so often unexamined. Would your word minister to us? Would your word challenge us? And would we live lives of true and authentic wisdom by the power of your spirit? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.